The podcast that you're about to hear contains acts of sex and violence. The hosts do not claim to be experts on the subjects that they present. Listener discretion is advised. And welcome back to Brutal Nation. I'm your host, Scott Alexander. Right across me is the one, the only, the terror herself, Tammy, the underdog, Underwood. All right, this is going to wrap up our interviews with Keith Hunter Jesperson. This is a four-part series, and this is call one from uh, the, the calls that we got on April 15th of 2023. Let's get into the calls. Hey, good morning, Keith. How's it going? It's going all right. Uh, how are you doing today? Ah, fair, fair. It's cold. <laughs> it's a little chilly, but it's cold. not that bad. Yeah. So anyway, uh, did I ever tell you that story there about trucking? Uh, uh, I had a guy there. I was in Corning, California, a long, long time ago. There, ninety-three, I think, ninety-two or ninety-three, and uh, I was uh, fueling up there at the petrol truck stop, and uh, this guy comes running up there and he said, Are "You Keith?" And I said, uh, "Looked at him, was kind of looked around." And I said, "Well, yeah, I am." And he said, "Why?" And he said, uh, uh, "You're headed up to British Columbia, right?" And I said. Yeah, and he said, well, I need to run with you. i got to get uh, I can get north there. I said, I'm tired. I need someone to talk to. And I said, well, how long have you been here waiting for me? He said, about six hours. I said, you catch any of that sleep while you're here and waiting for me? He said, well, no, I was waiting for you. I'm like, oh, really? Oh, okay, well, I guess you want to run with me. Let's go ahead and run, I guess. Uh, go get in your truck. Let's go. And Anyway, so I, I hit out on the, on the highway, and I got out there on I-5 going north. And he was about, he was, hadn't left the truck at the parking lot yet. And so I was on the highway, headed up, and uh, I call him on the radio. Hey, uh, hurry up, come on, let's get going. And he enters the highway, and he's coming. And if you're aware, just north of Corning, there's a little rest area. I pulled into the rest area and parked in behind a bunch of trucks. And I waited for him to go by me. And when he went by me, I kept calling him, hey, hey, hurry up and catch up. <laughs> <laughs> then, I went, then, then, then I went to sleep. I went. I, I parked the truck. Went to sleep for about four hours, and I got up. And uh, I was tired. I wasn't going to go any further. I didn't want it, and I don't like convoys anyway. So I headed up north after that, and uh, I got the can. I got the. I got the border and crossed the border, and went up to Pacific Produce where we're headed, and up to Richmond. I pulled in there, and it was about 6 o'clock in the morning when I pulled in, and I was the first. I drove all past. All these other guys are parked over there asleep, and I drove around them, got in, and I was unloaded first. And about the time I got unloaded, this guy comes walking up. He says, man, where the hell did you go? I mean, I, I tried to catch you all night. And I said, see, I told you. I figured it would work. And he said, what do you mean it would work? And I said, well, you know that first rest area when... Uh, you're right out of corner, and he said, yeah, and I said, I pulled in there and went to sleep. He said, well, I, I said, but you thought I was ahead of you, so that's why you stayed wide awake and got all the way up here, didn't it? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> well, you know. Oh, man. All right, so today we're going to be talking Definitely. about, you know, uh, everything that's happened since you were arrested and, and get everybody up to date. Yeah, let's, let's I, I've got about a, you know, I, I figured we'd go through this and, and there's a lot of things that we didn't talk about. You know, we got the murders and all that kind of crap. You know, that's, that's you know, everyone wants to know what happened to murder, but who gives a shit? I mean, it's over with, it's water under the bridge kind of a thing. And 
I'm doing the time, you know, and that's what, what I have to do. But there's so many little things that happened along the way that people didn't realize happened. You, when you deal with the legal system, there's so much, so many little things that happen. And, and in my case, I, there's a lot of twists and turns that nobody really knows about. All they know is about the highlights. You know, they they hear about the 166 in 13 years, they, they but they don't talk about how it got to that point. So this is where we want to start. I think we should go back to you know, on March 24th of 1995, um, I had tried to commit suicide on her. You know, I was uh, talked to by Detective Buckner from Clark County, and I was down there in Las Cruces, New Mexico on the 22nd of March, and they they held me there for about six hours, and uh, I had uh, told them I didn't do it, and then uh, after after they let me go, they gave me, the, they gave me the affidavit, and I read the affidavit, and I realized I was caught, and all I could think of was not being exposed, you might my family being exposed for me being a, a serial killer. Right. Now all they had me on, all they had me on was one one murder at that time was the Julie Winham case. They had no idea of, right. of me being a serial. So, but I didn't want to go down for that, and so I tried to commit suicide about three times. And each time, because I wasn't a drug addict, I didn't know how the drugs would affect me. I thought that if I could just buy over-the-counter sleeping pills, it would work. And that didn't work. I, I took 72 pills one time, and I just my body rejected them. I just woke up with a sore throat. And the next time, I I took half that many, and I still woke up the next morning. And the third time I was up there, I decided I was going to go for a hike and, and go up there by the snow line. But... Every time I turned around, I looked around, and there was somebody following me. So wow. I, real, I, I thought that I'd probably go to sleep. I'd probably pass out, go to sleep, and I'd wake up to a damn fire next to me. So <laughs> I made this phone call to Detective Rick Buckner about 9 o'clock on the night of the 24th of 1995. And I was at a truck stop about 60 miles east of Wilcox, Arizona. Now, the Wilcox police department, the sheriff's office, came over and they pulled into the, the, the lot. And when they came in, I just walked right up to them and told them who I was and surrendered to them and they handcuffed me and took me to Wilcox. Now the following morning, they drove me to Bisbee County Jail but near Bisbee, Arizona. Then I had to wait there for a few days uh, and, and deal with the legal system. Now once I got there, uh, they assigned me an attorney and the attorney, when I told him what I was doing, he said, the attorney told me the worst thing I could have done was tell the police anything. So this is what we have to contend with. The, the, the lawyers are telling us not to talk to the police. And if you do the right thing, you talk to the police. And if you're under layman's law, under the way we, the normal Americans or think the law works, is that uh, there's either... You're either guilty or you're not. And if you do the right thing, that you, you do talk to the cops. But well, the, the very first thing that, that I find out is that a lawyer tells me not to talk, not to talk to the cops. That's the worst thing I can do. So for the next few days, I don't talk to the cops. We don't. Uh, when when Buckner shows up with his his coworker to, to fly me back to uh, 
uh, Washington State, um, I basically just, you know, mum's the word, you know, I don't say anything to him. We get on the plane, uh, we do a, he drives us over to Tucson, he fly into, we fly into Phoenix, we switch planes and we fly into Portland and then he, he travels, we travel over to, uh, uh, to Clark County over here to Vancouver. Now, before I, before I turned myself in, I had written a suicide note to my brother, Brad, uh, telling him that I had killed eight people in five years. Now, all the time while I was sitting there in Bisbee, I started thinking about that damn suicide note. I said, man, i got to get my brother not to, not to expose that, you know, just to, to kill it. we got to get that other because here I'm going down for one murder. I didn't want to all of a sudden be pointed at for eight murders. Uh, I was, after talking to the attorney, I'm thinking, man, I did a bad thing. I better, I better retract on that. So when I got to Clark County, I made a phone call to Brad, and I said, uh, hey, uh, you need to uh, flush that. And, of course, he, he imitated, he went to the bathroom, and he flushed the letter down the toilet, and I thought for sure he had gotten rid of the damn thing. Well, he didn't. Um he had contacted our father, and our father decided to turn it over to the police. Um, he decided it would be best that that's what happened. So you can we can blame my dad for turning that that, that damn suicide note, note over to the police, and they would know have something to compare it to the happy face uh, letter that was in 1994 sent to the Oregonian. That's how they they, they made the connection. So um. anyway. Yeah, it was kind of crazy. So in May, uh, my lawyer, Tom Phelan, came to talk to me. And uh, he we, we go into a little cubicle there and, and a little broom, and, and uh, he throws down a copy of the suicide note, and which, you know, I'm, I'm just shocked because I thought my brother had gotten flushed the damn thing. I was thinking pretty good, and all of a sudden now it, my, my hopes and everything was dashed because my lawyer throws this down in front of me, and then he says that Detective Buckner has compared that to the uh, the original Happy Face letter that was sent to the Oregonian, and the handwriting matches, and now they're going to do a... Uh, they're going after fingerprints and uh, saliva off the envelope and everything like that. They're doing the DNA search. And he tells me, he asked me, is there any truth to this? Any truth to this uh, suicide note? And I said, well... Yeah, so I I outlined all eight cases at that time in May of, of, of 1995. And in these notes, these notes are, these, they become important later down in, on, the, uh, on, on the legal trail. You know, the way my lawyer wanted to settle this was to settle the last murder first, the second, the last murder second, and so on, all the way up to first. So the Bennett murder would have been the last case solved if I followed the way the legal system wanted me to follow it. So uh, Laverne Pavnock and John Sosnowski would never have gotten out of prison. They would have probably died in prison by the time we got around to it. And that's how the system would have worked. Now, what I told my lawyer to do is that we need to settle all these cases um, and just 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 go to them and, and push, push the narrative that I'm willing to talk, let's just take care of it now. In, in May, the Angela Sabrese case is a Nebraska case. It's not, 
I murdered her in Nebraska. I didn't murder her in Wyoming. And how did it become a Wyoming? Well, we'll get to that. Uh, so my lawyer, after May, he had all these in his notes of all of all eight cases, and he was going to go settle this and, and try to give me a life imprisonment uh, for whatever he could try to do. Uh, I know he wanted to take the uh, Winningham case to trial because he said he could get me murdered in the second degree. He thought he, I could get murdered in the second degree in all my cases. Um, but he wanted to take him to trial, and I didn't. Want, I thought that the trial was um, something that wasn't going to happen. I believe that if I were able to get Laverne and John out of prison, then everything else would fall apart, and there's no prosecutor in this country would take me could take me to trial, knowing full well I'd gotten two innocent people out of prison. So anyway, uh, fast forward to June of 1995. I'm sitting in the Clark County jails in in, in Seapod, and there's like 30 other people around me, and I'm watching the TV, and on comes the TV, and here's um, a flat, you know, news flash: the Happy Face Killer, Keith Jesperson, sitting in the Clark County jail, uh, or or could be the killer. It could be the Happy Face Killer. Anyway, they they threw this out. Now, Detective Rick Buckner. He went to the press. He went to, there's a guy in the, the Columbia newspaper named Bruce Westfall, and that was his go-to guy. He went to them, and, and he had, he told them, we, this is what we believe. We compared the, uh, the letter to the Happy Face letter, and this is how the press went in June of 95. Now, you can take this up. You can go straight to the archives of the Oregonian or the Columbian, and that's when this came all out. Now, it was just kind of crazy. This is... When I'm sitting there looking, I'm looking at the TV set, and here my face comes on TV as being a, now a serial, possible serial killer. Uh, I'm not not proven yet in court of law, but uh, they they believe I am. Um, I get pissed off because there's no gag order, and so the cops and the prosecutors can go to the press. And they can push this narrative of me being a killer and that I'm guilty and everything like that, but the, the judge never signs a gag order to tell them to shut the fuck up, right? You would think that it's supposed to be a fair system. The legal system's supposed to be fair, that uh, on both sides, I can't talk to the press, therefore they shouldn't be able to talk to the press, but they do anyway. They push this narrative along. Now, what was really strange about that, if you go to the LA Times uh, article a question of guilt by Barry Siegel. In there, Multnomah County expresses the fact that they were angry at Buckner for going to the press without going to them first to let them know that they had the possible serial killer that that might have killed, you know, Tanya Bennett in in, in their county jail. They wanted, they're hoping that they'd gotten access to me before the press did. And, of course, Buckner never allowed that to happen. He was, he saw uh, his his name in in broad letters on, on the newspaper, and that's what he was after. Uh, so that was that was a big problem that, that came about in June of 95, is that Multnomah County was upset they didn't have access to me uh, to prove or not prove or to make me shut the fuck up so I did not get those two people out of prison. That was uh, that was kind of now. 
in that press release, now my, my lawyer told me never not to engage the press. He said, uh, leave it alone. We don't want to talk about that right now because the press would be, now I've always been accused of using the press, which I have used. Um, I mean, I've used it to push things along. But anyway, we had a, I had a cellmate at that time named Rick Castellanos. Now, Rick Castellanos, when you look at him, his eyeballs bounce side to side. He's like looking at a, at a pinball in a pinball machine bouncing between the two the two apparatuses with the springs hit, bing, 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 and his <laughs> eyes would bounce back and forth. And he looked right at me, and, and he was caught in this idea of writing a book. Now, the Oregonian newspaper, they offered him to pay his fines that he owed so he could get out of jail so they could interview him. Now, Rick turns him down. He says, no, no, I want to stay in here with Keith. I want, to, I want to stay there for as long as it takes so I can write a book about this, right? And I, I convinced him about a week later. I said, what an idiot. I said, man, get your fines paid. Get the hell out of county jail, for Christ's sake. Go out on the free world. Don't be here. And so when he finally contacts the Oregonian and says, all right, I'll, I'll you go ahead and pay my fines. I'll go ahead and talk to you. Uh, the Oregonian, you know, pulls back. The offer says, no, we're not interested anymore, right? So he's pissed off at the world. Now, what's kind of interesting, uh, later, in about several years later, I got a, a re uh, when I was here at Oregon State Penitentiary, uh, I had a couple investigators come to see me about Rick Costellanos. He said, apparently Rick was out there in trouble again, and he was talking about how credible he was. He, was, he said that he was the one that got the two people released from prison that I had nothing to do with it. <laughs> wow. This is how his, his storyline goes, or this is this is how they, they they try to manipulate things. Now, this this is a crazy. This is it's crazy in county jail. This is everyone wants to. Uh, the moment I was found out that I might be a serial killer, the next thing you know, everyone looks at me with dollar signs. Everyone has a has a play in play, uh, which I'm bringing is now. Uh, you may have heard about Jerry Spence, that I wanted Jerry Spence uh, as a lawyer. In, in the, you probably heard that, right? Yes. I think so, yeah. yeah I remember that one, yeah. 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 Remember that? They were talking about how here I wanted Jerry Spence. Now, this is how this played out, okay? Now, we had a, had a guy in there named Ken Monsabrotten. His name is, nickname is Duke. Now, he was a king rat. Now, this is a, a snitch big time. This is... Every time he goes to county jail, he, he tries to hook up and try to make the best of things and try to get a better deal of things. Now, he's there with me. He comes, he's the first one that comes knocking on my door after this news conference there in, on, in June, and he says, he starts laying out what the best time, what's the best time I could do in, in, uh, on the West Coast. He figured that he's the only reason why I'm here at OSP. I, he told me that OSP would be the best place for me to do my time instead of going to Walla Walla, Washington, or, or down south in California. He said, the, probably the best place I could do to walk the yard and everything like that is because we have so many other serial killers that walked there. We have the I-5 killer. At that, uh, at the time I came in, we had Jerome Brutus, um, and, and uh, they had Douglas and Wright who were on death row, but there, there's a lot of different killers in there. And the, pol and the uh, policy in here um, on dealing with high profile was that, you know, we just, they just let us walk the yard. No big deal. Um, we'd have to 
fire away to get respect, but other than that, there's no big deal. But anyway, so so Duke comes to me and he wants to, to be my best friend, of course, because he's a rat. Now he tells me about OSP and he, and, he be, and he's the go-to guy. You know, I know that I need to use him to get my information out on the street because he has contacts to get it out on the street. And so in order for me to get those contacts made, I make him a deal. I said, now, he had talked about Jerry Spence because he's always in on this, this lawyer thing. He says, if you could get, if you had a case in Wyoming, you could probably get Jerry Spence to represent you. And uh, he brings all, his whole entourage or anything like that to the, to the table, and you get a good representation. And so I made him a deal if he's going to help me get my material to the street, I would give him a case. I would give him my Wyoming case, which was the Nebraska case, because I, I, I told him a lie. I told him a big lie. I said that I'd killed her in, in Cheyenne, Wyoming, and I tied her under the truck, and I dragged her 280 miles down the road to mile marker 210 in Nebraska. And, of course, he made more into the story than what it really was so he added to it because he, what is he he's a liar he's a he's a jailhouse informant what the hell he was going to make a deal matter of fact the deal he made was um he was going to help them kill me in wyoming uh that was his deal he's going to help to kill me in wyoming and what was his original sentence well he was charged with rape with a knife he had taken a knife and he held a woman at knife point and sexually assaulted her. Now, he got that drop to his sexual misconduct so that he they could help, he could help the Wyoming uh, Department of, to come after me and kill me on, put me on death row. That was his deal. That's, that, that's the help he's going to give me, right? So, he has a book writer. Uh, now, you might, might know who Ken Lee Montz brought in. Now, remember uh, Jim Fogle? You ever heard of Jim Fogel? Yeah, I think you'd mentioned it before. Yeah, he's he's a writer of Drugstore Cowboy. Actually, he's a screenplay as well. You know the movie Drugstore Cowboy. Anyway, he's doing time in Monroe, Washington. Now that's where Duke was sent. That's where Ken Montsbrot was sent. He went to Washington State, and he he landed right next to Jim Fogel, and they sat down and they decided to write the book, The Happy Face Murders, by Fogel and Lee. Okay. And Lee being Ken Lee Montebron. Now, I, I remember reading the book. I remember the first thing where uh, Montebron says he was in prison for misdemeanors and, and, and petty crimes, which is bullshit. He's a serial rapist. Right. <laughs> but, you know, that's what, that's what writers do, I guess. But anyway, um, he, while we were in Clark County, he contacted a lawyer named George Cullen. That, that's uh, K-O-L-I-N. And he deals with Phil Stanford, which is the or, the uh, reporter that ha- that I go to uh, right. to try to get the the information on on the Bennett case out in the open. Anyway, so they get together, and George he comes to see me. He's the go-to, he's the lawyer go-to guy to get this book accomplished. Now while he's in county jail with me, Duke he hustles the book that he's going to write. This is kind of funny. He hustles the book, and he sells. He, he tells inmates that he's going to give them 10% of the book profit if they help him with his sore items, his canteen, his, 
his product, his coffee, his candy, his, and they, they just inundate him with all this candy and stuff. And he's, he's, he's selling off the book now. He sells over 200% of the book, right? Right. So, so every time an inmate leaves and goes to prison, the new inmate coming in, he sells that guy the 10% the other guy had. <laughs> right. And, yeah. And so that the whole, so the book that he's proposedly selling in the future, uh, the proceeds is going to go to all these people. But in the meantime, he's getting all the canteen, he's getting all this product from the from the jail store, and he's living pretty good in jail, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's a funny. It's, it's it's a funny thing. It's just the way things work. Now, in December, of course, I had settled. A, you know, all my cases there, I settled uh, the two cases in Oregon, the one in Washington, got the two people uh, out of prison. Now, before that happened, now, Detective Buckner would bring people out of the city, of the jail, uh, which I was in. He would take them into a, a room, and he would ask them questions about what I was telling them. All right, so he was listening, he's hoping other people would rat me off. Now... Every morning at about 6 o'clock in the morning around breakfast time, I'd get up on a table and I would tell all the other inmates in there a story to tell the cops that day. Right. So that when they started pulling them out, everyone had the same story, right? Exactly. So the cops could not, you know, they were trying to infiltrate me. And uh, after about the fourth or fifth one, they finally asked the, the inmates, said, well, hey, how come your story's the same as everyone, just word for word? And he, he said, well, every morning Keith gets up on the table and tells us what to tell you guys. Wow. So, yeah. So there, so the, the cops are all upset. Now, that really, that stops most all of that crap, right? Now, like I say, well, so Duke actually, when I get all settled up in December, Duke actually ends up going to the state prison. And to, screw, to start messing things up, because he's he's the go-to guy. Remember, he's the go-to guy in all my cases. Right. He uh, he goes. I mean, the, the cops go to him to ask him questions, and then, being the little guy he is, he he, he writes me a letter and says, "Hey, have you, did you do this crime here, or did you do that crime there? Uh, is it, any truth to this? Any truth to that?" So, there's a whole menagerie of, of of things going on at the same time where I have this rat that's up there in Monroe, Washington, dictating policies of what I am to the cops that are asking the questions. Now, to spur this on, uh, I wrote a letter listing 22 murders, which included the original eight cases, to him. And I just made it up. I just threw 14 extra cases at him in different states at different times throughout my tenure as a killer and knowing full well that he would answer these cops coming in all the time talk asking all this stuff right now i still get i'm still getting police officers contacting me over that letter of 22 murders wow. they still come at me with it they're even now i mean i had one last year they came to me asking me if i was responsible for this murder in seattle and i said no, I mean, he came all the way down here to talk to me, and I said, <laughs> said I, I'm invested in murder 92 down in Seattle. I said, I didn't kill anyone in Seattle. He said, oh, that's why I'm here. <laughs> you know? Right. So this is my start of stirring shit up, because 
I know I'm dealing with the, with the, the rat, Ken Montebrun. Now, before I'm taken to Oregon, uh, on January 12, 1996, the Wyoming, they, they send the, uh, the detectives and they come over to talk to me in Clark County. And they give me a lie detector test. After they've talked about this, will I take a lie detector? Sure, I will. So I take the lie detector test. Did I rape Angel Savries? No. Was I telling them the truth? Yes. And I passed the test, which pisses them off big time because they were hoping they'd catch me in a lie and then they could they could help uh, build their case on me. Right. It's really nuts. It's really kind of nuts, right? So... When I come to prison, uh, I come to prison in February of 1996 here at Oregon State Penitentiary or through the Oregon prison system. Now, because Duke is the go-to guy, uh, the letter of 22 continues to get resolved. And, of course, Detective Mike Colt of Elko, Nevada, he contacts Duke about um, a case he has there, and it's a high-profile case. And eventually I get a, a phone call from him, and he's asking to come to see me to talk about this. And I told him, I'm not going to talk to him unless I'm immune to any prosecution, and I won't talk to him until then, right? And, of course, he calls me back uh, at a later time and says that he has the paperwork, that everything's good, he still wants to come and talk to me. So I, I get pulled out, this is 1996, I get pulled out of my cell one morning about 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock. They take me to the Oregon State Police Office in Salem, chain me to the floor. In walks these two guys. One is, the, one is the, one is the, I'll call you right back. Okay. All right. All right. Remember, boys and girls, you can send us an email at BrutalNation at TwistedBlueLLC.com. Check us out on Medium, Crime Beat on Medium, and wherever you get your blogs. Log on to Facebook and join Citizens of Brutal Nation. Join in the chat. Sometimes it's exciting. Sometimes it's nothing happening. But, hey, it's all up to you. Start a chat with us. This show's copyrighted 2023 by Twisted Blue LLC. All rights are reserved, and we will talk to you guys later. Bye-bye.